0: Last week we were studying the goal of ethics, and we began by, uh, well, we had looked at some objections to the Christian position in general, but then we had an introduction to the goal uh, of ethics, uh, what we might call the situational perspective in ethics, and we looked first at a secular effort to do situational ethics, or to do ethics from the standpoint of moral goal and that was utilitarianism represented by men such as Bentham and Mill. Can anybody remember any of the criticisms we made of Bentham and Mill? What's wrong with utilitarianism? We don't have to do it all, but I'd like to know that we're all perking up and getting into the lesson tonight, Gary. Hey, no, account, uh, That's right. That's right. If you're going to calculate the consequences on a utilitarian calculus, you'd better know all the consequences to make the right decisions, but no utilitarian can do that. Okay, are you remembering the position? Anything else you can think of that's wrong with this position?
1: Yeah, things
0: like that. That's right. It's it's impossible to calculate because there's a inability to quantify those things. They're incommensurate in different categories as well. Utilitarianism, remember, I said, also conflicts with uh, uh, some basic moral intuitions and convictions. Yeah. I think of all men, such as one ought not ever to punish the innocent. Utilitarianism allows you to punish the innocent sometimes. All right, after uh, seeing the failure of utilitarianism, we went on to the Christian view of the goal and situation in ethics. We looked first at past events and their implications for ethics. Such past events as God's creation of the world, the fall of man into sin, and the redemption that Christ has made for his people. Then we turned and looked at future events and their implications for ethics. Future events like the second coming of Jesus Christ and the millennium, uh, kind of as a subordinate question there, we pursued it with some length uh, or some degree of detail, the question of should we seek rewards? Have you all been seeking rewards this week that made any difference? And then we started looking at the present situation and uh, ran out of time after we had said a few things. I'd like to review the present situation and then continue for a few minutes. Remember I said that under the present situation, the world is still God's creation. Still God's creation... And as such, it is always revealing his standards to us today. Secondly, I said sin has not reduced our responsibility. There is no such thing as a tragic moral choice, at least in the system of ethics that I'm teaching you, because uh, no man is ever put in a situation by God where he has to sin, even if it's the lesser of the sins. I said very hurriedly last week that ethical, process, uh, ethical progress excuse me, is still a social matter, Ethical progress is still a social matter, and I was thinking there of uh, such things as the restraint of the state against sin uh, and the resources that the church offers to us to fight our, our sinful nature and to overcome it and win victories in the moral realm. We must remember fourthly about our present situation that there are still temptations in the angelic world or from the angelic world. Ephesians, the sixth chapter, tells us that we wrestle not with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers and all the rest. Of course, the Bible teaches us that uh, those who are the children of Abraham, uh, the angels, have been given precisely to minister to them in, in their um, salvation. Consequently, any Christian who is looking at his situation and trying to make a moral decision ought not to underestimate the difficulty that faces him. How can you underestimate it? You might think, well... There's really nothing to this when, in fact, Paul says you're wrestling with demonic powers who want you, you see, to to fall into sin and rebellion against God. But on the other hand, you mustn't overestimate the difficulties of your situation thinking that, well, Satan's so powerful. You know, who am I to fight him? I just can't win this battle because we have angels battling in our behalf as well. And besides, since we live under grace, Paul teaches us that sin no longer has dominion over us. So don't overestimate. Don't underestimate the situation. And then special revelation continues to be a part of our situation. And this is where we were at the last of our lesson uh, a week ago. We're dealing with Joseph Fletcher, you see, and he tells us, you know, you've got to consider the situation, what you want to accomplish here, and the situation will determine how you're going to behave. And how you behave from situation to situation is going to be different. Well, what we want to answer him is we want to make sure we look at the entire situation. We want to be looking at every factor that, uh, that we possibly can. That means past events and future events, look at all the present situation. And when we look at the present situation, we don't want to forget that God's Word is part of the situation. If I can be very crass about it, there's this book, you see, that's sitting here. And I've got to take account of that book. And I've got to take account of that book in a way that I, take, uh, that I don't take account of with respect to any other book. God has spoken in that book, at least on any orthodox conception of Scripture, and therefore it would be a great insult to the Lord God Almighty if I did not look at that book when I considered the situation. And what do I find when I open the book? Of course, we're right back to it then, right? All the standards of God. And so situational ethics is not going to uh, give us any justification to violate the norms of God's Word. But then I brought up a subordinate question with respect to the change of our situation and the development of history, what happens to the norms of God's special revelation through history? What happens to the law of God? What happens to the commandments of God through history? Doesn't history change, in some sense, the law of God? And at that point, we stopped and considered the threefold uh, breakdown of the law of God as it's found in the Westminster um, Confession. And I kind of I didn't redo that breakdown, but I, show, I did try to show you that the breakdown was in... Um, two different areas. First of all, in the Old Testament, we need to find God's moral law. And by moral law, we mean a law that has perpetual sanction. It's a a standard of ethics which does not change and it binds all men. Now, when we look at the moral law, we find, first of all, general precepts of morality. And by general precepts, I mean Statements of moral duty, which are put in very broad and um, very um, generalized terms. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't steal. And so forth. You also find general precepts like love the Lord your God with everything that you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. These are general precepts of morality. They're part of the moral law. Now the difficulty made by many people today, unfortunately, is that they confuse the moral law with the general precepts of the moral law. The writers of the Confession and Catechisms didn't do that. They always considered the general precepts, in particular the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, as a summary of the moral law. Obviously, a summary is not the expanse that it summarizes. Okay, so the moral law is found throughout the Old Testament, and it is summarily comprehended, says the confession of faith, in the Ten Commandments. Well, what do we have in addition to the moral law found in general precepts, or the summary commands of the law? Well, we also have illustrations and applications. These are to particular cases. So God shows us what it means not to steal when he says, don't muzzle the ox when he treads. God shows us what it means not to steal when he says, don't defraud your workers, don't hold their pay overnight, and so forth and so on. Now, those are particular illustrations of how not to steal from people, not to violate the command about integrity in our dealings with others, in our financial matters. Uh, a general precept of the law is that uh, we are not to, um, we're not to murder However, when we read on in the law of God in the Old Testament, we find an illustration. If a man goes out chopping uh, wood and his axe head flies off and he didn't know that his axe head was loose, then this man is not to be found guilty of uh, of murder. He's not to be uh, treated as a murderer. Whereas if he knew that his axe head was loose and he went out anyway in total disregard for the safety of his uh, neighbor and the head flew off and killed him, then he is a murderer. So there God gives us an illustration of how to apply the commandment, thou shalt not kill. God gives us an illustration of how to apply that commandment when he says you must put a parapet around your roof. You must put a railing around the roof of your house. Now, do these illustrations and applications change? Yes, they do. They change because of the cultural change that we experience. For instance, I li- at least um, until I came to Mississippi, I lived in a, uh, I lived in a community uh, that uh, wouldn't have had any use for a law about chopping wood. Um, or it would have been very unusual to find that anyway. I lived in a suburban community near Los Angeles, and uh, uh, that that commandment just doesn't have any particular force for uh, you know concrete and uh, freeways and uh, suburban living. But it certainly does have a lot of application to people who drive cars with faulty brakes, okay, uh, or do other things that might be detrimental to the safety of their neighbor, not considering, uh, not taking due caution and all that. We may not have to have railings around the roofs of our house, houses, although I did put a railing around the sun deck in our uh, home near the beach once, uh, but we do uh, need to put railings um, uh, say at our stairs or fences around our swimming pools and all that. Okay, so the illustrations may change because of the change of history and culture, but they are still, the principle that is illustrated remains binding. Now the applications uh, often enough are stated in such a way that they don't uh, undergo any necessary change in terms of wording. Uh, The Bible prohibits uh, incest, for instance, and uh, it just seems to me that that application is worded in a way that applies to all cultures, and therefore we don't worry about any change in that particular case. Unless, of course, somebody wants to say only the Ten Commandments are binding today, and then incest is allowed but I don't think we want to be driven to that conclusion. Now, the other category of special revelation laws are ceremonial laws, and as you know from my book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, I prefer to call those restorative laws. I think the idea of moral versus restorative expresses what is um, the contrast between these two categories better than moral and ceremonial, although through history it's usually been called ceremonial. The restorative laws prefigure Christ. That is, foreshadows Of Jesus Christ and his saving economy. And the example I like to use is that there must be shed blood for atonement in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, you can ask yourself whether we have to follow that law? And the answer had better be yes, because if not, then Jesus didn't have to die. We dare not approach God without the shed blood of Jesus Christ covering our sins. And so these prefigure Christ and we don't observe them in the way that the Old Testament Jews did precisely because of the fulfillment of the shadow that is the coming of the reality that was prefigured. All right. Ceremonial laws also involve laws of holiness for the redeemed community. When Christ would come and redeem a people they are to be a holy people, peculiar people, zealous for good works, set apart from the world, holy and God uh, gave symbolic expression to the holiness or separation of his people from the world by uh, telling the Jews that they were to keep separate from the Gentile nations and expressing that separation in terms of a, uh, a separation between clean and unclean meats, a separation between different kinds of seeds, separation between different types of uh, clothing or cloth, uh, a separation uh, you, don't, uh, you don't plow with a uh, ox and an ass together, so forth and so on. Now, do we have to keep those laws today? Well, there's something similar to the illustrations up here. We don't keep the outward form of those laws. That is, it would be all right, I suppose, to, to plow with an oxen and ask now, it would be all right to sow your seed together and to eat unclean meats. But on the other hand, the principle that was taught by those laws in the Old Testament can't be violated. That's why Paul says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It isn't right for a Christian uh, girl to marry a, a non-Christian boy. No, because the point of the law is to stress the holiness of the redeemed community. That is, the separation of the redeemed community from the world uh, of sin and, uh, and unbelief, symbolized in the Old Testament by the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, which were to be sep- to keep separate. Now, of course, holiness is moral, It's moral holiness that God wants, but it's the separation from the world that's expressed there. Separation meaning you have a separate community, the redeemed community. And so the moral law would have been, in effect, totally apart uh, from God's intention to save a people, totally apart from sin and totally apart from redemption. The moral law, as I understand it, is precisely what God would have demanded in any situation because his character, his justice, was such as it was. However, God freely chose to redeem people according to uh, uh, blood atonement and so forth. And in, in those people that are atoned are to be a holy and separate people. And that's why I think the Puritans tended to classify these laws under ceremonial. There's another reason, too. Notice that in the, case of the, uh, case, in the case of the case laws or the judicial laws of Israel, these illustrations and applications, if we live in a situation where the illustration still applies, we are still to follow that law, just the way it's worded. Um, I believe I was under obligation to put that railing around the sun deck, uh, uh, the roof of the place we lived in near the beach, uh, to protect human life. Most of us don't live under circumstances like that, and therefore we have to find the principle in, another, in a parallel application. But when it does come you know, up that we can uh, do that sort of thing, we are obligated to do it. That isn't true in the case of the holiness requirements of the Old Testament. You see, that's why these don't go, come up here under moral law. Because... Um, it's possible for me to avoid eating shrimp and pork today. But there's no necessity to do so. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is not made up of eating and drinking. And uh, in fact, when Jesus uh, was teaching the Pharisees that his disciples didn't have to wash their hands before they ate, he had the parenthetical remark that apparently, I think, comes from Peter and through Mark, that thereby he made all meats clean when he said that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but rather what comes out of him. So it's not it's not necessary to follow those laws even in their outward expression today. Whereas it could be necessary to do so if I was in a parallel situation in the case of the case laws or the moral law. God.
2: Is it always <coughs> the illustrations that are there, some of these are very difficult to uh, tear out in the principle or, uh, or, in, uh, or most of them are all been pretty much delineated? Uh,
0: no, I don't think that all of them are obvious. Some of
2: them are still very vague. Uh, I way. should say
0: some of us are still very vague. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: they are not so much vague, but uh, we're certainly having a, a hard time in the modern world uh, using uh, the Word of God properly when it comes to some of these laws. And by the way, it's in my own personal opinion, that's part of the reason why there's such a flap and controversy over theonomic ethics today. That's because a lot of people, not understanding how to use some of those laws, assume, well, they must be abrogated then. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, hearing that we believe, or that I believe, that every Old Testament law, we must pay attention to it and abide by whatever it teaches us, uh, assumes that that means a literal following of of these laws, or uh, they imagine in their minds a false application of those laws, and then try to say that's the theonomic view. And so, I mean, a lot of confusion, and I think unnecessary strife has been engendered by that very fact. We're going to be studying this later on tonight, but uh, in Hebrews, the fifth chapter, I think you see uh, the answer to your question about the difficulty of applying some of these laws. In Hebrews chapter 5, you'll recall that uh, the author has been speaking about Melchizedek and his priesthood. And in verse 11, he says, Of whom? That is, of Melchizedek. We have many things to say and hard of interpretation. See, and there you say, well, yeah, you see, the Word of God just has some really tough points in it. That isn't what the author saying. They're hard of interpretation, seeing that you have become dull of hearing. And if I might make my moralistic point here before I go on, I think for well over a hundred years, the Church of Jesus Christ in the Reformed community has become very dull of hearing the Old Testament. For when by reason of time you ought to be teachers, you have need again that someone teach you the rudiments of the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of solid food, for everyone who partakes of milk is without experience of the word of righteousness because he's a babe. But solid food is for the full-grown men, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Those who have used and exercised their ability in taking the word of God and applying it to situations, it turns out, will not have the difficulty, will not be so dull of hearing, uh, will not have the difficulty of interpretation that uh, the readers here obviously uh, did and we do with respect to the Old Testament law. And that's why uh, I find it interesting whenever I'm reading something in the Old Testament or considering some uh, difficult moral question and I'm having a hard time finding what I uh, think is the right application of the law to that situation, I'm not at all tempted to go to somebody who's antagonistic to the Old Testament law and ask his opinion. Moreover, I'm not and it's not because of arrogance by any means, but I'm not at all tempted to go to somebody who's recently come to the conviction that he must pay attention to the law. I'm usually inclined to go to somebody who has done it over and over and over again and I think might have some wisdom in that case, might have some maturity, who because of reason of use is a full-grown man. And so, um, in answer to the question, I think that some of those laws are not clear to some of us and that's because we are just rusty when it comes to using them. Go ahead. Are
2: there... uh, some people today, other than yourself, who would be
0: publishing, who would be working on this, that there would
2: be things that would uh, sure, sure. Rush
0: Dooney and some other people? Or? Yeah, a lot more than that. I wouldn't want you to think it's just the Chalcedon Foundation. Interestingly enough, people who are antagonistic, if you were to press them in terms of consistency to their views of the law, nevertheless, are very tempted to do... Um, studies of Old Testament requirements and tell us what they mean about ecology or taking care of the poor today. And so you can even find worthwhile things in people who, if they were consistent, would be antagonistic to the use of the law. You see, I think uh, being a post-millennialist, God makes use of all the gifts within his kingdom to advance his purposes even if people are facing the wrong direction while he's making use of them. Uh, they may not believe the law is binding, but they still give us valuable studies of the law sometimes. But yes, Mr. Rushdoony's book, Institutes of biblical law, is um, uh, for whatever mistakes it may contain and whatever you may think o- overall of it, has certainly got to be commended as the major ethical work of the 20th century just because he's bold enough to say I'm going to make the effort to apply these Old Testament laws to contemporary situations. All right? Okay, we'll do it right now. Okay, I won't do it in terms of looking at the passages, but I'll just give you a rough outline. The Leverett Institution, uh, even before the calling out of God's people, the Jews, uh, was apparently in the ancient world a way of guaranteeing that a man would not lose that a man 's family would not lose his inheritance all right so that if a man um, uh, was deprived of children uh, and then died, uh, of course everything he had uh, it would appear after his wife died would have to be assimilated by the culture or taken by other members of the family, his brothers, or something like that. And so it was understood in the ancient world that it was an obligation of the man's brother he had a brother to go and raise up children through the uh, widow, so that those children would continue the man's name and continue his fortune, his inheritance, whatever he had. Now when God called the Jews that I believe it is a it is a pre mosaic um, uh, institution uh, we see that uh, earlier than and we see it in the book of Genesis, uh, at least in one case however. Uh, when God calls out the Jews, there's a specific revealed institution called the Leverett institution, whereby um, after the Jews inherited the promised land, if a man died without having sons to inherit his plot in the promised land, then his brother would raise up seed through the widow so that that man would not lose his place. And so that family would not eventually be wiped out in terms of their inheritance that God had offered. But now what did I say in yesterday's sermon about the inheritance of the Old Testament? It was but a shadow of the kingdom of God to come. In the New Testament, we find no interest in the soil of Palestine. Uh, I don't care, how, you know, whatever the premillennialist says, you will not find any interest in repossessing the land of Israel. But you'll find plenty of interest in what the Old Testament taught, uh, the promise of Abraham, uh, that he would be an heir. Uh, interestingly, Paul says about that, he, uh, you might think Paul had forgotten his Old Testament. Abraham was to be an heir of the land of Palestine, Canaan. But when Paul speaks of it in Romans 4, he says Abraham was promised to be an heir of the world. And when the book of Hebrews speaks of Abraham, it says Abraham didn't by any means inherit what God had said. Why is that? Well, because he was looking for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker was God. He knew what the real meaning of the promise was. Consequently, in in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, any number of other places, Ephesians chapter 1, you'll find the uh, authors of the New Testament teaching that we are the legitimate heirs of Abraham and that we who are in the kingdom of God have the promised land because of the hope of heaven that lies before us. Consequently, with the passing away of the significance of the soil of Palestine, which was the inheritance to every Jewish family, so also passes away the significance of the law that guaranteed one's physical possession of that plot of ground in Palestine. So the Leverett Institution was a a good illustration of a law that passes away with the state of Israel itself. Does that mean that it teaches us nothing today? That there is no instruction in righteousness in that Old Testament scripture? I don't believe so. makes it harder for us to find it and all that, but I still believe that there are principles of equity and morality, justice, fair play, love, concern for your family, whatever it may be, that are illustrated by that law. Is that good enough for... (laughs)
3: <laughs>
0: I feel better already. Dale? <laughs> um, yes? So the principle we are to follow, but not, the, but not the precise wording of the law. Let me give you uh, an example. The law says don't, uh, don't plow with an ox and an ass together. Okay, now, if I'm a farmer and I happen to own an ox and an ass and I have a field and all that, I do not believe that I have to avoid today. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I, you know, I'm assuming this is a good illustration. Some of you might refute it. But it seems to me that that law does not have to be followed in terms of that outward w- uh, wording today. But that the principle of that law does have to be followed anytime I have an opportunity, well, it's not really an opportunity, any time I have a temptation to be improperly uh, united with the uh, world of unbelief and sin. So that if I have a daughter, you see, who falls in love, quote-unquote, with an unbeliever, I must do everything within my power to make sure that, uh, that uh, the redeemed community is kept separate from the unbelieving world so that she is not unequally yoked with that unbelieving fellow. So the principle still applies today. However, I don't see that there's ever a situation where the outward wording has to be followed. Now, what's different about the case law is that the principles apply today. But where the outward situation is the same, we must still follow them. So that I do have to put a railing around my roof, provided I do... Um, oh, it's been a long day. Uh, provided I do have a roof where I uh, entertain people and there's a threat to human safety. that make sense? Yes. Why wouldn't... Why can't you just say
4: that that was just merely a principle for the Old Testament Jews to follow, to be often asked... God meant back then for the, they're literally not clouds
0: in Man. Are you suggesting to that the principle too? well, they did have to follow the principle. Right, the principle and
4: the, the
0: exactly. They had to follow that, That's a good point. I'm glad you put it just that way. In the Old Testament, they had to follow the principle and the literal wording. And somebody might say, "Why? Mm-hmm. Precisely because these are symbols of a coming reality, symbols of the fact that the church will be separate from the world. Moreover, to a church underage in its minority, in its immaturity, the Jews were constantly reminded that they had to be kept separate from the Gentiles. And even with the constant reminders, you'll recall, they didn't do so well.
1: Is there a principle of interpretation by which you can systematically classify uh, certain commands in the moral laws and certain ones in the ceremonial laws? Yes. What is it?
0: Well, because of uh, our failure of use, I can't state it just now. I don't know if you know what was just done to you. Yeah. Uh-huh. The answer is yes, because God's not arbitrary. So there it must be, be a, a principle one that you use. It, yes, I have one that's a rough and ready one. Let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament, and then, when you see how the New Testament is treating certain Old Testament laws, laws which fall into the same general cl- uh, classification, may be similarly treated. For instance, I don't find in the New Testament any statement that would indicate uh, this mixing of cloth. Or uh, cl- yeah, cloth. This mixing of cloth prohibition of the Old Testament doesn't have to be followed today. But I do find statements in the New Testament about I don't have to worry about the mixing of my uh, plowing animals, and I don't have to worry about the mixing of clean and unclean meats. Now, if the Old Testament law about not mixing different types of cloth served the same purpose, which I can prove, I think that it did then I may similarly treat it on the uh, uh, model of what the New Testament did with those other kinds of laws. But if I to if if there being a system, uh, a principle, so that you could go home and if you had enough time you could work them all out by tomorrow morning, there is such a principle. I'm not sure that any of us are sanctified enough to state it, however. I think we're all kind of rough and ready at this sort of thing. thought I saw some other hands. you ready to go on? All right, let me make a few more comments about these distinctions uh, within the law of God in terms of situational morality, the change of situation and uh, that sort of thing. Now, the Confession of Faith divides these laws into three categories. Uh, The categories, it turns out, are really two uh, ethical categories, moral and ceremonial. And then the moral category is broken down into two literary categories, uh, judicial laws and general precepts, or summary laws. Uh, But nevertheless, you have these two overall categories and three mentions of uh, uh, different types of laws in the Confession. Can anybody tell me where in the Bible that distinction is found? One more appeal. Can anybody tell me where in the Bible that distinction is found? All right, I don't want to be embarrassing to you all, good Presbyterians that you might be, but uh, do we follow the confession or the Bible? Be careful how you answer that now. In most cases, hopefully, we can say both. But Now, what if it turned out that that division was not a biblical division? Would you still believe it? Is the doctrine of the Trinity a biblical doctrine? Uh, yes and no. What we express in the doctrine of the Trinity is also expressed in the Bible, but not in the same way. All right, I believe that what the confession expresses by these three divisions of the law is basically true to the thrust of the Bible, but it's not taught in the Bible. It's not clear exegetically whatsoever, either in the way that the Old Testament is broken down into chunks of material or in terms of anything that the Bible says about itself to divide up the types of laws we find. In in fact, you'll find in the New Testament, often enough, the law is spoken of as just one unit. The law. uh, without any great effort to distinguish case law from uh, general precept. I do have one New Testament passage where I think the ceremonial law is broken out in a separate category. Um, uh, We'll talk about that later. But nevertheless, for the most part in the New Testament, the law is a unit without concern for a confusion between different types of categories. And therefore, whatever we say in terms of the continuity and the discontinuity between Old and New Testaments with respect to the law of God, must be said about the whole law. Is the whole law abrogated in the New Testament? If you read the New Testament, you'll find Paul applying ceremonial precepts. You'll find Paul and any number of writers applying directly case law illustrations, and you'll find them citing over and over again uh, precepts from the Decalogue. So can we say that the law is abrogated in the New Testament? No, you can't say that it's abrogated in the New Testament. On the other hand, do you want to say that the law of God continues without any alteration after the coming of Christ? No, you don't want to say that either. So we are forced, uh, whatever you may think of the confession, we are forced to say there is continuity and discontinuity in the law of God, and that continuity and discontinuity must apply in some sense to all of these categories. Well, let's begin with the um, with the ceremonial law. What is the discontinuity in the ceremonial law? Anybody? Ted. What's that? Form of sacrifice? Form of sacrifice. We don't keep the uh, outward form of sacrifice that the uh, Old Testament indicated, you mean? Okay, what about the, the, the dietary laws? Do we have to keep the dietary laws in, in the outward sense that we don't eat pork and shrimp? How
1: about the calendar
0: of feasts? Is the calendar of feast binding on us from the Old Testament? No. But now, are these laws authoritative for us today? See, so we've seen discontinuities. Is there also continuity? Yes. As I've said, no man dare approach the presence of God without sacrifice, and in this age that sacrifice can be only the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of bulls and goats was never satisfactory and will never even be accepted as a, in a provisionary way in this age. So there is definite continuity and discontinuity. How about the moral law? Now here I'm going to go a little bit beyond the confession and challenge you to really think biblically and not just traditionally. All right? The controversy has to do with the... Uh, judicial law in our day. That's where the most of the debates being carried on. But I want you to know most of us would agree, I think most Presbyterians and Calvinists would agree it's what we just said about the ceremonial law. Now let me challenge my Calvinist friends, those of you in the room too, if you believe that the law is a unit in the sense that I've indicated, and if you believe there's continuity and discontinuity, well do you believe that there's continuity in the moral law? Oh yeah, obviously. Paul says don't steal. The Old Testament says don't steal. We aren't to steal today. Do you believe that there is discontinuity can anybody think of any way in which the moral law is different today no no we're talking Okay. when I said moral law I meant the general precepts not the case law illustrations how's the moral law different today do we have a stronger motivation to keep the moral law today is motivation part of ethics yes consequently there's a difference with respect to the law is the moral law as much a curse and threat to us ultimately today as it was to the Old Testament Jew? No, it's not. Because of the accomplishment of salvation, redemption by Christ, uh, the moral law which was ordained unto life it became, in fact, a schoolmaster leading us to Christ, has had some of that um, oppressive nature removed because of the sweetness of our salvation and the power the Holy Spirit gives us to keep it. So it's not as much a threat and a curse to people today. And because our sins are forgiven, in fact, the law is more of a delight to us Now let me offer you one more very important point. Because you see, I believe in progressive revelation. I don't believe in moral evolution. But I do believe in progressive revelation. You all know the difference between the two? Some of my opponents don't. The fact that God teaches us, you know, elementary truths and then elaborates on them and there's a progression, epistemologically speaking, a progression in the clarity of our understanding and the information given to us does not mean that what God said at the beginning and what God says at the end of this process conflicts. The fact that God is showing himself more and more as his people mature through the ages, if you will, the fact that God is showing himself better and better or giving more and more information about himself does not mean that God's moral character is changing. And yet one of the uh, key arguments against theonomic ethics, well, it's not a very key argument, it's a a sloganized argument, is that uh, theonomists don't believe in progressive revelation. And that is concluded because theonomists don't believe that there's a change in the moral principles by which God governs the world. That doesn't mean that God doesn't teach us those principles, you see, with more and more light and understanding as the ages go on. So now let's come back to this question. Does the moral law change when the New Testament is given? Absolutely. Sure it does. God's given us more light, more revelation, more information, more understanding of how those laws are to be understood and applied. And so there is a change, a change in our ability to grasp what the moral law is getting at. It's kind of like a detective, you know? When the pool of relevant information uh, expands, then he gets closer to finding the crook, right? So if he has two clues, he just kind of says, well, maybe you know there's five or six different suspects. When he gets four clues, he can narrow it down to two. And when he finally gets ten clues, he says, aha, that's the man. In a similar fashion, with the giving of more revelation and the completion of the canon... God's people have been given everything sufficient for their ethical stand and their ethical decisions, and the understanding that God wants to give, progressively revealed throughout the Bible, has come to a completion. The canon is now closed. And so even in the case of the moral law, we can find discontinuity. God's given us more information, he's expanded the pool of relevant data, and consequently we can understand it better. Now, I saw some hands. Nancy? I'm not sure that I don't already know the
4: answer to this, but because Said, uh, but like in Christ's teaching, on the Sermon of the Mount, you know, he went deeper into what the Ten Commandments meant. But with the Jews, deeper the than God, what? It, it, like, for instance, um, that not only is adultery wrong, but you know, look lust. Lost. Okay, Sermon but but on.
0: deep. What is that deeper then? What what is that an advance over?
4: Uh, the, the, the Old Testament. Form, yeah, than the outward form of the
0: Old Testament. Now listen to the question again. Is this is this an advance over the teaching of the Old Testament? did Jesus improve upon the teaching of the Old Testament? Did the Old Testament teach that lust was wrong? Exactly. But I agree with you, it was an improvement. But it was an improvement over the Pharisaical ethic. Jesus' opponent in the Sermon on the Mount is not the law of God. It's the perverters of the law of God who think that they are perfect and righteous and holy because they keep the outward form. Jesus says, oh, you're far from the kingdom of God if you think this righteousness will will, uh, be accepted by God. It's not at all. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter into the kingdom, Jesus said. So I'm agreeing with you uh, that uh, Jesus is giving a deeper ethic or a, uh, a more extensive ethic, but not more extensive than the Old Testament. With respect to the Old Testament, he said, I've come to confirm it because it was good just the way it was.
1: If there's a progression in our being able to discern
2: how to apply the law, uh, what about things like the uh, discernment of a uh,
1: Adulteress. There seems to be a supernatural gift they're given to the priest to serve
0: whether She was an adulteress or not? Yes, and I, and I should... Well, I think the easiest way to get to the bottom of that is, is to attack the way you put the question. I think...
3: <laughs>
0: should we discuss the way you put the question instead of attacking it?
3: Uh,
0: you mentioned the priest having an ability to discern the adulteress, and I'm not sure that's true. I think God, through a special revelatory device, enabled the priest to discern an adulteress by this uh, uh, technique of putting the dust of the temple into the water and making her drink and that sort of thing. And so that's a form of revelation. With the closing of the canon, cessation of miraculous gifts, and the, uh, and the fact that God no longer gives special revelation, those, uh, those principles must also pass because God's not going to reveal himself specially. If anything, the advance is in, in that we don't need that kind of uh, technique today. Uh, not that we can find adulteresses, you know, in a more efficient way, you know, uh, but that for some reason that was necessary in the Old Testament as a form of special revelation. It's not necessary today. But I don't think the uh, priest had the ability, and I don't think we have a better ability than the priest necessarily. What I mean is that God's given us more revelation. With a greater field to work on now to understand, we can have a uh, better uh, and a more clear comprehension of what God requires of us. Well, now let's get on to the to the. Uh, okay, Paul. Can
2: you clear me up. I, I got lost back there. When I got stuck up back there when you were discussing the Leverite law and you. Paul, <laughs> 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 wow, you should have
1: spoken up, oh, right up long ago.
2: You were you mentioned why something about of that? Why um, we we no longer uh, look. The promised land, as far as we're not no longer interested in, in the literal um, owning the promised land.
0: Well, right. We're not interested in the land of Israel in as a promised land.
2: And and I I think you're you know, using you're basing that argument on the fact that that um, Abraham wasn't um, looking for the literal uh, land of Canaan, but uh, but heaven. Yes. Well, that's not the only
0: argument, but that's one right. of the premises. Yes. Well,
2: it just occurred to me that um, if he wasn't looking forward, looking to the literal land of Canaan for fulfillment, why were his, you know, his, um, the people who look to him as their father of faith, um, looked to that in a literal way? Why did they? Uh, land of Canaan, but the, uh, but heaven. Yes. Well, that's not the only
0: argument, but that's one right. of the premises. Yes.
2: Well, it just occurred to me that. Um, if he wasn't looking forward, to looking to the literal land of Canaan for fulfillment, why were his, you know, his, um, the people who looked to him as their father of faith, uh, looked to that in a literal way?
0: Why did they? Because it was given to them as a literal land. I mean, they understood it in terms of the age and the way God was dealing with them and their uh, level of comprehension. But the author of Hebrews wants to make a point that the father of the faithful who didn't possess the land, nevertheless knew what he was really looking for. And that's what we look for. If you want another kind of argument that I think uh, we didn't have time for in the sermon yesterday, it's always nice these things to be brought up. I can go back to my notes now and do that. Look at uh, Galatians, the uh, third chapter. Verse 16 says, Now to Abraham were the promises spoken and to his seed. All right, Paul, now that's what you're concerned with, the seed of Abraham. Why did they get the literal promised land if Abraham knew what it, you know, the ultimate purpose of that promise was. Well, to Abraham were the promises spoken into his seed. And then Paul says, he doesn't say and to seeds, plural. He doesn't say to seeds as of many, but as of one. And then he quotes, and to thy seed. And then he says, which is Christ. You now Paul, this is a very intricate argument. Paul says, the promise in the Old Testament was never to seeds, plural. It was always to and to thy seed. Which Paul says is singular, and so that promise is fulfilled in Christ. And It turns out that uh, the only place in the old Te- two places in the Old Testament you'll find this phrase "and to uh, and to thy seed" is in Genesis thirteen fifteen and in Genesis uh, seventeen eight. And in both those places, the promise being spoken of is the promise of the land of Canaan. And so Paul says, especially there, he does not say "into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed." The promise to that singular seed of the promised land, which is Christ. Who is the true inheritor of the promised land? Christ. Christ is the one who gives us the inheritance, therefore. Moreover, you'll notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 20, For how many soever be the promises of God, they are in him, yes, and through him, amen, unto the glory of God. No matter how many promises God gave in the Old Testament, they are yes and amen in Christ. By the way, I think that's one of the strongest New Testament refutations of premillennialism, Because you got the promises are not to Christ and to the Jews. All the promises, however so many they be, are confirmed in Christ. And so Paul says, even the promise of that land was confirmed in Christ, the singular seed of Abraham. So Anyway, we don't look for the literal promised land and God gave the literal promised land to the Jews as a prefiguration of the kingdom of God to come. Okay?
2: This might be unrelated, uh, but uh, one of the things that I get a lot of questions about is the people uh, you know, in executing these crimes. Like, uh, you mean to tell me that we're going to stone people uh, for these crimes? What do you have to say about the application of the, of the punishment?
0: You mean to say that we would do something other than what God told us to do? Well,
3: I mean there's not a lot of stones. (laughs) Oh, is
0: that the question? The form of execution?
3: execution.
0: I'm not I'm not at all convinced that the form of execution has to be the same. I understood you to be uh, appalled at the idea that we would execute certain people and you were using stoning as the language of the Old Testament. No, I don't I don't see that the law requires stoning per se. Any more than the law requires that we uh, plow our fields with uh, uh, donkeys and asses resident with tractors today. Well, how now, now you may show me that I'm wrong. Maybe there is some moral principle in stoning over against electrocution or hanging or whatever. Well, what about the, the community? Because it was the person
2: that sometimes that testified that you know, threw the stone. Yeah. And well, the person who
0: testified was... could throw the switch, too. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: mean, wasn't there a principle there, though? I mean, that, uh...
0: Well, that's, that's an exegetical question that has to be considered. And um, I'm resisting getting into it now because we're going to take this up when we study capital punishment later. Uh, But my feeling is that while there is a principle involved, public looking and seeing and fearing so that they don't do these crimes, I'm not convinced that that has to be in the form of stoning. There are other ways to accomplish even that end, I think. Now look, we've talked about continuity and discontinuity in ceremonial law which nobody is going to challenge. We talk about continuity in the moral law, nobody's going to challenge, and discontinuity, which nobody seems to talk about, but if the law is a unit, everybody should talk about. Well, now that we've done that, it should be easy to talk about the case laws and judicial law. Is there continuity and discontinuity? Of course there is. There are changes in the civil application of the law under the New Covenant. Why is that? Well, the New Covenant no longer identifies the kingdom of God with an earthly political unit. We, have a, we belong to a heavenly city. Christ is our king. We don't have loyalty to a national Israelite king. The kingdom of God is no longer defended by the sword. Moreover, some of the civil laws in the Old Testament are clearly applicable to a particular historical situation, the division of Canaan into plots of ground for the various families of Israel. That doesn't apply to us anymore. That's not binding on us. Uh, laws about the consultation of Urim and Thummim, whatever they mean. Uh, because they have to do with um, a revelation and the cessation of revelation is taught in the New Testament, they don't apply to us. Uh, The close connection between the priesthood and the state is not quite the same today. The canon is closed. There is no Old Testament priesthood. Uh, There are no rites of sincerity as with uh, the example the pastor gave us of the uh, priest giving um, uh, dust from the floor of the temple in the water that a woman drinks to show if she is in fact an unfaithful. Okay, so there are uh, elements of discontinuity. But now we must ask people, having granted that we no longer follow these laws as a civil polity given to the nation Israel, having said all of that, does the kingship of Jesus Christ today eliminate a need for a distinctly Christian political order? Is the fact that Jesus Christ is our king today rather than Old Testament Jew? Is the fact that Jesus Christ is our king mean that we don't have to have a distinctively Christian social ethic and, and political order? Absolutely not. In the first place, we know that although God gave a temporal king in the Old Testament, that did not compromise his divine kingship over Israel. That The law of God specified the, uh, the law for the king long before Israel even had a king. When Israel asked for a king and God was displeased, it was because of the form of king that they wanted. Not that they wanted a king at all, but they wanted a king after the manner of their pagan neighbors. And in so doing, they would reject God because the king of God's choosing would be one who followed his law. The New Testament teaches us that there are God-ordained rulers today. Romans 13 doesn't say anything if it doesn't say that. That rulers are God-ordained. Do you ever know of a situation in the Bible where God ordains somebody and doesn't expect that person to operate according to principles of his choosing? No. God ordains ministers in the church just like he ordains ministers in the state. And both ministers have standards of morality to which they are obliged. And so I think we have to say we need a Christian order in politics today. Well, where is political wisdom to be found? Where are the principles for political ethics to be found? In the New Testament? Well, A little bit. I don't want to say it doesn't have anything to say about political ethics. I I wouldn't say that by any means. But it doesn't have a whole lot to say either. It has a lot to say about the need for political ethics, but it doesn't give us much advice. Let me give you a very good illustration. Paul says that the magistrate has the sword and he doesn't bear it in vain because he's the minister of God. Okay, so Paul says it's very important that the way we punish people in society, which is the very heart and core of, of political ethics, uh, is something that's not to be vain. It's to be something given in service to God. The magistrate to be a minister of God as he uses the sword. Now, where does Paul tell the magistrate where to use the, how to use the sword? He doesn't, at least not directly, I can, a few places uh, indirectly. And that's because Paul assumes that the political wisdom of the Old Testament is sufficient. And there's every reason to assume that if you read the Old Testament. You notice that in the Old Testament the law was not unique to Israel, but it was rather understood to be a model and a standard for all nations round about. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 and 8, Moses says that this is your wisdom in the eyes of the nations, all this law which I've given you today, and that the nations will say there is no other nation on earth that has such righteous standards as these standards that God has delivered to Israel. Moses specifically teaches that Israel had a model law code for all the nations. In Isaiah 51.4, Isaiah said that God gave his law as a light to the peoples. A light of justice to the peoples. So God gave his light to enlighten the darkened nations round about, the light of the justice of his law. He gave the wisdom and righteousness of his standards to Israel as a model. And so David could say in Psalm 119.46, I will speak thy testimonies before kings, where David is speaking specifically of the statutes of God. Psalm 119.46. What kings? To what kings is David going to speak the law? In Israel? David was the king in Israel. Besides, there weren't multiple kings. The kings, plural, that David's referring to are the kings round about him. In Leviticus 18, verses 24 to 27, we read that because the nations that inhabited Canaan had committed all the abominations forbidden by the law of God, for that reason, God will vomit them out of the land. And then God turns around and he says to Israel, and if you commit these abominations, what will happen? Well, of course, special dispensation for you people, right? Different moral standards. He says, and I'll vomit you out of the land if you do these abominations. And also those abominations are specifically said to be contrary to the statutes of God. Now think about Ezra chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. There Ezra praises the God of heaven because he's put it into the heart of Artaxerxes to have the law of God enforced in all the region beyond the river, even to the point of death. All the law of God. Here's a pagan king, a pagan ruler who wants the law of God observed not just in Israel but in all the region beyond the river. And and Ezra doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. Artaxerxes, that's just a little overzealous. That isn't the way this is to be done. That law is only for Israel. No, he praises God that that was put into the king's heart. In Habakkuk, the second chapter, verse 12, we read, Woe to him who establishes a city uh, by blood and founds it on iniquity. In the same indictment, in Habakkuk, uh, in Habakkuk this indictment was directed against the Babylonians, and the same indictment is found in Micah 3.10 against Israel. God has one moral standard. Let's stop and think about how ironic what I've been saying over the last few minutes is, or not that I've been saying it, or what I've been saying, but that it has to be said. You know, the conclusion of the matter is God's moral standards in politics and social issues is one. He doesn't have a double standard. Stop and think about it. Isn't that obvious? Would God be righteous if he had a double standard of morality? God tells his people not to have a double standard. He says you're to have just weights and balances. You're not to have one weight for the Jew and another weight for the Gentile. So you're not supposed to have one balance for your family members and friends and another balance for those you want to skin alive. God says you're to have one standard. Indeed, the Old Testament teaches that there was to be one law for Jew and Gentile alike. Leviticus 24, 22. One standard for the sojourner as well as the Jew. God has one standard. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't change his mind. Now, of course, we have a ridiculous situation uh, in our country from county to county uh, where you have dry counties and wet counties, right? And I think you probably all know if, you, if you've lived... In, Near that situation, what the first uh, financial establishment over the county line is uh, once you leave a dry county, right? Or almost oh, the first out in California, where it's not a question of wet and dry. Often enough, it was a question on the Fourth of July of where you could get fireworks. You'd have some uh, some cities or counties where you weren't allowed to use them, but you would find. I'm not kidding. The the sign would say, "Entering the city of such and such." leaving a city didn't allow fireworks. And, I mean, right underneath the sign, right there, was the place where you could buy fireworks. Now, is God's law to be reduced to that kind of humorous, absurd farce? No! What is immoral in Israel doesn't become moral over the county line. God has one standard of morality. And thus, God judged the Canaanite tribes the same way he would judge his people when his law was violated. God expected his law to be kept as, you see, the model of wisdom and righteousness and a light of justice in all the nations. David spoke that law before kings. Ezra praised the Lord when kings would follow it. Habakkuk and Micah have this same prophetic indictment, whether it be against Babylon or against Israel. And therefore, Proverbs 14.34 teaches us in the wisdom literature intended for international uh, application, remember, uh, Proverbs 14:34, Sin is a disgrace to any people, right? but righteousness exalts the nation. So I've been saying that the fact that there is discontinuity in what is called the civil law or the judicial law or the uh, case law of the Old Testament doesn't by any means do away with the authority of those laws. For those laws still teach us the wisdom and the principles of morality we need for socio-political ethics today. We must imitate the righteousness of Christ as it's found expressed in the Old Testament case laws. Christ is our king today and Christ is king over all the nations. All kings will answer to him and they'll answer to him for whether they keep his law. Now put that way, I'm not really sure why anybody has all that much difficulty with theonomy but uh, uh, the fact that you know, persist. There is continuity and discontinuity throughout the law because the law is a unit. The categories of law are convenient theological devices, moral, judicial, ceremonial, but in the end we're accountable exegetically to the teaching of God's Word. Do yeah. you have any questions on this section of my lecture material? I, I've got to the end of that particular
1: part. Go ahead, Brad.
2: <laughs> you mentioned that in some respect the law was not as a oppressive to
1: us Yes. In this age yes.
0: As it was in the Old
2: Testament. Could you elaborate on that just just a moment? So in what way it's not as
0: aggressive? Well, we have a greater ability to keep the law than the Old Testament Jews did because of the accomplishment of redemption and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Notice how Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 contrast the, the covenants. The one covenant symbolized by the letter of the law and the other by the spirit of the law. Now, that doesn't mean that we, that the Old Testament people had to pay attention to details and we just have this general spirit of the law about us. That means the letter of the law on stones over against the Holy Spirit that writes the law upon our hearts. We uh, There is, in some sense, a greater ability to keep the law in the in the New Testament. And for that reason, it's less of an oppressive force and curse to God's people today.
2: Is it any less oppressive uh, for the unbelievers? No.
0: No. It's more condemning for the unbeliever today, in fact. It's more oppressive for the unbeliever and it's less oppressive for
1: the believer. Okay. Wayne? Just a moment ago, you said that the uh, righteousness of Christ was linked to the footsteps of the moral law almost this time What
0: I said is that the righteousness of Christ was expressed in the Old Testament judicial law and we must imitate the righteousness of Christ. It was just a summary expression. It wasn't a new argument, just a new way of putting it
2: since
0: Christ put to
1: death in his body the
0: laws and regulations I appoint to Ephesians 2.15 thank you Ephesians 2.15 that section turns out to be the one place in the New Testament that I'm aware of where the ceremonial law is designated uh, under a particular denomination or literary uh, expression let's look at that Let's read the whole passage from verse 11. Wherefore, remember that once ye, the Gentiles in the flesh, okay, you who are physically Gentiles, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in contrast to the path. To this situation where the Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the promise of God's covenants. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off are made nigh, are made nearby, are brought near in the blood of Christ, or by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both one. Both what? Both Jew and Gentile. Broke down the middle wall of partition between them. And how did he do that? How did he make Jew and Gentile one? How did he take that wall of partition that separated the Jewish Uh, portion of the temple and then the outer court for the Gentiles how did he break that down here's how he did it he abolished in his flesh the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles what was that enmity that he abolished in his flesh it was the law of commandments contained in ordinances Christ abolished the law of commandments contained in ordinances does he say here that Christ abolished the law of God no he says he abolished that system of commandments law, namas, used here in the sense of a force or uh, a category or a system, often enough in Paul. The law of commandments. Of course, if, if that means, if commandments and law mean the same thing here, then what he's saying is he abolished the commandments of commandments. doesn't make any sense. That's why I think this is the one place we find a, an idea of a system, a, a combined a system of related ordinances. This is the system or law of commandments And he doesn't say it's all of the commandments of God, but those which are contained in ordinances. And that word ordinances in Greek is used elsewhere in the New Testament for the shadow ordinances of the Old Testament, the ceremonial law. And the reason Christ abolished in his flesh this system of commandments contained in shadow ordinances is that he might create in himself of the two one new man, so making peace, and reconcile them both in one body unto God through the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Well, as we said the Old Testament ceremonial law contained holiness requirements that separated the Jews from the Gentiles but Christ has abolished that system of commandments contained in shadow ordinances that he might bring together Jew and Gentile does that mean that Christ no longer wants a holy people? no, it's just that he doesn't see the division as national he sees the division as completely moral or on the basis of whether one has faith or not in him so that's what I think Ephesians is talking about do you want to uh, pursue that? No, I. Don't
3: that. Okay, Dale. In Colossians 2.8 and
0: Colossians two twenty, uh, we have the term of the elementary
3: principles, elementary physical of the world. Mm-hmm. We sometimes argue that, um, that it's a reference
0: to the law. Um, yes. Would you like to argue that it's a reference to the law of God? Don't think
2: it's a, it's a
3: I think it's an
0: absurd argument too, so let's go on. (laughs) Okay, Colossians 2, at verse 8, Take heed lest there be anyone that makes spoil of you, that robs you through philosophy, which is vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Well, it's interesting. Paul uses three ways of describing this philosophy that is vain deceit, that robs us of something. What does it rob us of? all you people who believe in contextual exegesis. What does it rob us of? Verse 3. In whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, we're going to be robbed of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge if we pay attention to philosophy described by Paul as vain deceit. Both vanity and deceit are used by the way throughout the Bible to describe autonomous ways of thinking, uh, thinking which violates the the revelation of God. But now Paul describes this vain deceitful philosophy as after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world not after Christ I take it those are parallel expressions and the rudiments of the world are the ABC's of worldly learning I think the elementary principles of learning is another use for that uh, Greek word and so after the tradition of men after the uh, presuppositions of the world if I can use a modern expression which is to say a philosophy that's not after Christ okay I don't think that refers to the law at all Refers to the traditions of men, which are not according to Christ. In verse
2: twenty and 20, twenty-one is a list or uh, examples of what those principles are.
0: Mm-hmm. Although I think that there is some merit to the argument, although I'm not going to argue it now, but there's some merit to the argument that these examples go even beyond the um, uh, even beyond what the Old Testament might have required of men. This is will worship here. If you died with Christ from the rudiments of the world, that is, if you're not really following the the principles of worldly learning here, uh, of course, that can have a broader uh, sense. Uh, The specific application of that is, uh, I think, principles of learning in in the verse we just looked at, verse 8. But if you died with Christ from such rudiments, worldly rudiments or principles, why do you, though living in the world, why do you subject yourselves to ordinances? And then he gives these illustrations, handle not, taste not, touch not all which things are to perish with the using after the precepts and doctrines of men, which are a show indeed of wisdom and will worship and humility and severity to the body, but are not of any value against the indulgence of the flesh. What I think he's referring to here are um, ethical systems which go beyond the word of God in this show of will worship, but in fact are not any protection against the indulgence of the flesh what Paul tells us there basically is that when the law of God is put aside and other, and other laws are put other laws will be put in its place and that's when that happens that's will worship i give you an example of will worship okay the Bible doesn't anywhere prohibit dancing the fundamentalist church of the 20th century prohibited dancing to the degree that it was prohibiting that which was not lustful and all the rest I mean Obviously, just like drinking or eating food can be sinful. Uh, dancing can be sinful, but dancing is not in itself sinful. And to prohibit it categorically is a form of will worship. It's going beyond uh, the Word of God to say, touch not, handle not, taste not, all the rest, when God doesn't say that. But that's no. Pr- notice that fundamentalists who didn't engage in dancing didn't gain thereby any protection from the indulgence of the flesh. If any doubt about that, just ask how many girls got pregnant out of wedlock at Christian colleges. It just does not do it. Only God's law is a protection against that, not will worship. Okay, so I don't say that's referring to the law of God in either one of the places that you mentioned.
3: Well, is, have, okay, drop it now. No, go ahead. You, well, just sandwiched in between those two references, just reference to food, drink, the name of judgment guard for food, or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Mm-hmm. And right, right away people uh, think, okay, let's well, talking about food.
1: Yeah. Well, the things
0: of the Old Testament law, let's say that Paul is referring to the Old Testament law in all three of those places that you've mentioned. If he is, the area of Old Testament law that he's referring to is, in fact, shadow ordinances of the law, which we're not arguing have to be kept today anyway. I mean, so what's the argument prove? It doesn't prove anything contrary to the thesis, and therefore it's irrelevant. However, I think there's merit, as I've already said, to the fact that Paul is talking to ver- about various forms of, uh, of moral systems or uh, uh, philosophical teachings which go beyond the Word of God and the requirement of God's people today. He refers to uh, uh, worldly philosophy, he refers to the Old Testament shadow ordinances, and he refers to will worship that goes beyond the Word of God altogether. tends to complete his argument and cover the field, and I think that's what he's doing. But even if he's not doing it, my point is, Nobody can show that he's referring to the perpetual moral law of God. He's referring only to the shadows of the Old Testament, which we don't think have to be kept in the literal sense anyway today. Nancy?
4: I understand there has been uh, a lesson lately that uh, would suggest that the Old Testament uh, case laws and its specific the symbolic forms of the law and the keeping of them were in a sense to um, act as a kind of assurance for Old Testament believers in
0: the way that the fullness of the Holy Spirit acts as our assurance. Um, would you like to comment on that? I'd like to understand it first.
3: Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> my um,
4: explanation. The, of that. Let's
0: go over this step by step now. Okay. The case law of the Old Testament provided a form of assurance to the Old Testament yes, believer.
4: That, that by keeping the um, outward forms of the law, um, a believer felt more sure
1: More <laughs> sure of
0: what? <laughs>
4: of his salvation. Of his being faithful to God and therefore God being faithful
0: to him. Is that different in the New Testament? Does the Bible teach us that to the degree that we are obedient to God's word we'll have greater assurance of our salvation? No. No, I think it does. Yeah. Oh, that's
4: sure, what I'm saying. The it's not, the, it's it's not, not different.
0: different. That's right. So, does the... Uh,
4: well, okay. I, I don't
0: want c- to express too much emotion to here. That Most of God. these arguments, I mean, you see, you've got to show discontinuity of an you know, exegetically based sort that will teach contrary to the theonomic thesis. Now, we don't even have the first step of that kind of argument here because it's, there's no discontinuity. The obedience to the law in the Old Testament was an attestation to one's redemption and, and obedience today is uh, attesting to one's uh, salvation. And what does James say in chapter 2 about faith and works and all that? And, so, and what are works for James? James, What are the works that James wants to keep in chapter 1, verse 25? He says you're to be a doer of the word and not hearers only. You know, just like the man who looks into the perfect law of liberty. Okay, he's referring to the law of God, which is perfect, the perfect law of liberty. And we aren't to be just hearers of it, but doers. And if we are doers, then that attests to our faith, doesn't it? So, I mean, if that's what the guy says is true of the Old Testament, I say, that's right, and it's true of the New Testament. So let's go on. Now, where's the argument? The argument would have to implicitly be something like this. They needed an outward way of obedience to be assured of their salvation and we can just have kind of an inward holiness that assures us of our salvation. Well, I don't for a minute trust this inward feeling sort of stuff, you know. I get indigestion from cornflakes sometimes. <laughs> no, no. Nah. Besides, John puts it very well, doesn't he? In First John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And hereby we know that we know Him. What does it it mean to know God? Anybody want to give a short discourse on that? Biblical exegesis? (laughs) That's a broad category, but in its its, uh, deepest form it means to be in a covenantal relationship of blessing with God. Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, isn't it? And this is life eternal that they know thee. Okay. And so, John says, remember it's in John's Gospel we learned that the knowledge of God is salvation, and hereby we know that we know Him. Here's the assurance that we're saved if we keep His commandments. All right? And he that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I think that's how I'd answer that argument. We better keep the law if we want to know that we're saved. We're getting so close to the break now that there's no way I'm going to catch up with my outline, so I just as soon state. The penal sanctions are but
1: shadows. Uh, and the case in point is the Corinthian, uh, the
2: incestuous Corinthian believer.
0: Uh, okay, let's ask first of all if the penal sanctions are shadows. Okay? Do they express simply something that taught the Jews at that time, uh, some principle? And don't have to be kept today because they don't express an abiding uh, standard of justice and equity. In Hebrews, the second chapter, verse two, the author of Hebrews says. In fact, it's it's really the opening premise of an argument that it's an a fortiori argument. If it's true in in this case, how much more will it be true now? But he says, if the law actually says, if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, that's the law of God, uh, mediated at Sinai by angels, according to New Testament theology. If the law proves steadfast so that every transgression and offense received a due recompense of reward, how much more? Okay, and he goes on to give his argument. The premise is that every transgression in the Old Testament received its due recompense. In Sunday school yesterday, um, I was uh, discoursing on this a bit in the book of Revelation, uh, God gives blood for blood, you may recall. Those who have, who have been drinking the blood of the saints, God will turn their seas and inland waters to blood so that they have blood, he will give them blood to drink, John says. And that's a reflection of the Old Testament language of eye for eye and tooth for tooth. God never punishes a man or says that we ought to punish a man um, uh, according to his life when he's only offended at the level of a tooth or an arm. Okay, So it's bruise for bruise and wound for wound and burn for burn and then life for life. Uh, which isn't to say that we literally take a man's tooth or bruise him or so forth but that the way we punish him must be commensurate with the nature of the crime God never judges too harshly or too leniently and that's what Hebrews 2 tells us every uh, transgression and offense received a due recompense of reward it received precisely what justice demands and uh, consequently they aren't but shadows in the Old Testament these penal sanctions they are in fact an expression of the justice of God
1: also being said that, well, you know, versus your eyes shall not pity him.
2: The New Testament teaching, you know, of being able to show mercy to that rapist might
0: not be yeah, wrong. Where does the New Testament teach that a civil magistrate can show mercy to a criminal?
1: Well, the idea being that he's a Christian now, and so now he knows that he should employ that. Well, I know the
0: idea. I said, where does the New Testament teach that idea?
1: <laughs> I
0: don't mean anywhere. Oh yeah well that that certainly hangs up the argument a bit what we're saying is this is an autonomous idea and it's a law coming from oneself and not a law coming from God (laughs) boy those hands went up quickly there (laughs) we'll come back to that in a minute Um, in the New Testament I don't see that there's any mitigation of the penal severity of the Old Testament Paul said if I've done any of these things of which I'm accused and am worthy of death which is precisely the language of the Old Testament for a capital crime worthy of death I refuse not to die okay Ted was Christ a civil magistrate right there? Hmm. So even if he was remitting uh, the death penalty for her, he wasn't doing so as the civil magistrate, was he? In other words, even if I grant the premise of my opponent, his conclusion doesn't follow from the premise, which I think is usually an embarrassing situation to be in. But the premise isn't true. Christ asked that the woman taken in adultery be given precisely the demands of the law. When his opponents came to him, testing him, remember they had no concern for the woman taken in adultery. They were concerned to trip up Christ, to make him be pitted against the law. See, if Christ would have condemned the woman, he would have been going beyond what the Romans would allow since they occupied Palestine. They were in charge of capital offenses. However, if Christ wouldn't have condemned the woman, then he would have been violating the law of Moses and untrue to his own teaching. So his opponents thought that they had really caught him in a good situation. And in fact, Christ caught them. The woman was what? Taken in adultery. So where's the other party to this offense? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone, Jesus said, repeating the Old Testament requirement that a man who was free of guilt for the transgression that was uh, alleged, had, uh, that witnesses had to be free of guilt of that, and that if they testified against a man in a capital crime, they had to be the first ones to throw stones. So Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. To the law of Moses they wanted to take him, to the law of Moses he went. And lo and behold, the law of Moses protects the rights of criminals as well as severely punishing them when they're wrong. And there could be no due process in the case. Some commentators suggest, perhaps not uh, without warrant, That when Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust, you see, he was in. They had come to him in the temple. That he was reminding them that a rite of sincerity could be carried out, and that he was the one who, in fact, knew the sincerity of their hearts. How did these men know that she was an adulteress? I don't want to be crude, but I think, frankly, they probably had made use of her services. No, no man was brought. And so Jesus said, "All right, the one, which one of you here is free of guilt? You cast the first stone." And so Jesus looks down. He looks up. They're gone. And he says, "Where are your accusers?" Do any of the opponents of theonomic ethics believe that we ought to execute people without witnesses against them? And this is the third level of argument. Even if you forget all the rest, the fact is, nobody would accuse the woman. Was Jesus expected to have her executed without due process? Without any witness against her? The same Jesus who said at the mouth of two or three witnesses, shall everything be established? No. And so, what did he say? He said, go and do what? Sin no more. Jesus knew she was guilty. He warned her not to sin, told her not to, exhorted her not to, but there was no civil penalty for the obvious reason that there were no witnesses against her. So I don't see there's any mitigation of the penalty there at all. In fact, Jesus said, let's go to the law and we'll carry it out if you're ready to do it. But they weren't ready.
2: One argument that I get from the antagonists against God's law is the situation of uh, David now. You've heard that many times. I want an expert answer. I am
3: doing
0: for our answer, bro. Let me answer it very quickly. Um, how do you know that David was guilty of that crime? Well
2: he admitted
0: to it. Where did he admit to that?
2: Well when confronted
0: by Nathan. Oh, how did Nathan know?
2: The Spirit of God revealed it.
0: Ah. Can you can you can you go into court and claim that God told you something? and that's your testimony against the man? There wasn't a Bible that testified against David in that day. I'm, ta- I'm asking, who were the two witnesses against David? Well, not Nathan. Nathan, didn't te- Nathan was not a witness to the crime. Nathan was told of the
1: crime by God, just like you are told, and I am told. And David, you know, repents, and we see that, and we know what he's repenting of but the fact of the matter is there were not two witnesses to that and there was no way David could have been executed even if that was the mind of God for that situation. Again, over and over again, people who presume to know what the law requires go about giving us these counterexamples, when in fact they don't have any interest in knowing what the law requires because when you do, you find out it was never violated. Chris? Okay. the actual application of the Anonymous principle, there would probably be, in some ways, in some cases, a lot that, in the right now, because kind of laws, of, uh, because, you know, in terms of people and, yes. uh, and uh, in terms of, for so example, yeah, the homosexuality, there's kind of, times when kind you of, kind of know if somebody's a homosexual, you can't see it. Okay. So I think, think that's, know, that's, uh, more murder, more uh, you know it, but you can't see it. That'd be a point for me to, to try to remember to, to be giving to people, because that's absolutely true. An uh, article was getting six years into the Bay, oh, six years ago, and about, which the man talked about the law, the Old Testament law, and uh, and what it required in terms of capital punishment. And he said, "These people who argue from the Old Testament law, do they really want to follow the Old Testament law of capital punishment?" Then he went through the laws of evidence, and he said, "Do you really want to follow these stringent laws of evidence?" And he was challenging them that they don't want to be consistent; they just want to keep capital punishment from the Old Testament, but they want to have modern laws as, uh, of evidence and of their students. And so I was very tempted to write back and thank the man for the article. And so, but I'm not reduced to absurdity on that point because I want to keep all those laws. And in fact, we would have fewer convictions uh, in, in some areas because we would have more stringent laws and greater protection uh, for people that their lives might lie, not be taken without due uh, proof of it.